Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn with Houston Public Media. And I'm Eric Skelly from Roco at River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. And this time, we're talking about Henry Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, which debuted at Mr. Josiah Priest's Boarding School for Girls in Chelsea, London, in 1689. A long time ago. Lucky Josiah Priest's in the (laughs) school for girls. And in fact, that's something to bear in mind, that this was actually written for schoolgirls to perform. Right. And it is one of the earliest extant operas that we still have um, that is performed today. And it's the earliest, uh, I believe it's the earliest English opera that we have. And it's also Purcell's only true opera. Right. That is, you know, through sung and through composed, etc. Uh-huh. And it's based on book four of Virgil's Aeneid, which tells of the arrival of Aeneas and the other Trojans in Carthage. Right. They've crossed the Mediterranean having left Troy. The same situation that we find in part two of uh, Berlioz, Les Troyens. Only this is much shorter. (laughs) (laughs) So when the uh, opera opens, act one, we are in Dido's court. She is the queen of Carthage. And Aeneas and the Trojans have shown up and have sought shelter in Carthage. And inevitably, Dido has begun to fall in love with Aeneas because he's this handsome warrior chap. Right. But she's concerned that that will make her a weak queen. Right. Which is, you know, it's it's a theme that we see with, with uh, historical queens over and over and over again. If she gives in to her impulses as a woman, does that make her uh, a, an ineffectual ruler? And she's quite troubled by this. She she has an aria, Abelinda, I am pressed with torment. And this is before things start to go south. <laughs> so, <laughs> Belinda is her maid, her right-hand woman. Exactly. And as you said, at the opening, Dido does sing, Peace and I are strangers groan. Because she has this emotional turmoil. Right. And she does not know what to do about it. Right. The source of it, of course, is Aeneas. And Belinda suggests that, you know what? Everything could be resolved if you two would just get married. Yeah. Form a romantic and political alliance. Right. But this is an opera, so that's not going to (laughs) happen. There is that concern, though, that by expressing her feelings for Aeneas, etc., that she will lose her strength as a monarch, as a queen. And that would compromise, obviously, the Carthaginians, her people. Right. But her court, Belinda and her attendants are all encouraging her to follow her heart. In fact, one of the attendants says, the hero loves as well. In other words... Aeneas likes you. He loves you back. (laughs) Imagine that. And then Aeneas enters, and Dido at first keeps him at a distance, is cold toward him. But he offers a proposal of marriage, and she accepts. And they have a celebration. A celebration. Yes. I'm getting married in the morning. morning. (laughs) (laughs) Scene two. We are transported to a cave. 
a cave of the sorceress who is plotting the destruction of Carthage and the destruction of Dido. And she has all sorts of uh, nefarious henchmen. Minions. Minions. <laughs> to help her execute her evil plans. And they basically, throughout this scene, they basically kind of wring their hands and, and um, cackle about what havoc they're going to wreak. What she decides to do is to have one of her minions disguise himself as Mercury, the god Mercury, and go to Aeneas and remind him of his divine destiny, his which duty. is his duty, which is to reestablish the Trojans, to reestablish Troy in Italy. Italy. And that's what Aeneas had set out across the Mediterranean to do, lands in Carthage, and because of his attraction to Dido, etc., has been waylaid. Hey, let's stick around here. <laughs> so the plan is, the evil plan is to send this evil minion, disguised as Mercury, to remind Aeneas of what he's supposed to be doing, the journey that he's supposed to be on, and that that will tempt him to leave Dido and to sail to Italy. And this would leave Dido heartbroken, etc. She would die, and the sorceress's evil plan would be accomplished. End of Act One. End of Act One. Act Two, we're in the middle of a hunt. Which actually began in Act One. Did it? Yeah, it did. Wow. <laughs> there were horn calls in Act One, Scene Two, while you're... You know, watching the sorceress and her minions wring their hands, you could hear the horn calls in the background uh, as they're off on their hunt. And the sorceress plans to whip up a storm that will... Um, Drive them to take cover. Right. Send them back to the palace. Yes. So then, the beginning of Act Two, we are in this grove. Dido and Aeneas and their entourages have taken a little bit of rest yes. in the grove yeah. and are admiring its beauty. Right. It's the pastoral existence. And they are taking a little bit of time out to appreciate the beauties of nature, as you do. As you do. A little bucolic rest. Bucolic, that's a good word. <laughs> and there's all this activity going on around them. They're having a picnic or what have you, and the servants are all running around. And... Dido hears a clap of thunder in the distance. Mm -mm. And Belinda then tells everybody to pack everything up and to head back to the palace. Haste, haste to town. Is that what she says? Yes, she does. Haste, haste to town. Yes. Everybody leaves apart from Aeneas. And the sorceress's minion appears to him in the guise of Mercury. Mercury. And reminds him of his sacred duty. Keep going, Aeneas. <laughs> because Jupiter has told him that he has to go and found this new Troy on Latin soil. And Aeneas, of course, is reminded of his duty and thinking that Mercury is the messenger of the gods. And he says, yes, you're right. It'll be yeah. difficult for me to leave Dido, but this is what I have to do. And he leaves to prepare for the departure from Carthage. End of Act Two. End of Act Two. Act Three opens in the harbor at Carthage. 
All the Trojans are making preparations to depart. And there is this uh, sort of comic element or lighter element that comes in with uh, one of the sailors singing the aria, Take a boozy short leave of your nymphs on the shore and silence their mourning with vows of returning, though never intending to visit them more. In other words, all those women that you've hooked up with, they'll be devastated when you say that you're going to leave, but tell them, oh, don't worry, we'll be back. Even though you won't. Even though you won't. (laughs) What is interesting is that this is precisely what Aeneas has to say to Dido. Yeah. See ya. Bye. Gotta go. Don't want to, but gotta go. So we are presaging the downfall. A little comedic foreshadowing of of what's going to be the tragic end end of the opera. Yeah. There's a little bit of dance, and then the sorceress is really happy because everything is going her way. Right. And furthermore, she's going to see to it that something awful happens to Aeneas as well after he leaves. She's, she's got it in for both of them. She's just a piece of work. That that's, sorceress. that's right. <laughs> then the action moves to Dido's palace. Dido and Belinda come in and they're looking for Aeneas. They can't find him. And Dido is distraught. But then he shows up and... Her worst fears are realized. Yes. Her worst fears are indeed realized, Eric. You are correct. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, I have to leave. It's my duty. I have to leave. And she mocks him. And Aeneas says, well, hang on a minute. Okay, I'll stay. (laughs) And Dido says, oh, no, you won't. Mm -hmm. If If you've said you're going, you're going. Right. Thus, on the fatal banks of Nile weeps the deceitful crocodile, she says. And she also says, Aeneas leaves, and she says, death must come when he is gone. Which sets the stage for the most famous number in this piece, and an aria which, all these centuries later, is just one of the most eloquent expressions of grief ever written. When I am laid in earth. This is Dido's lament, often called Dido's lament. Yes. And it's extended. I think it's the longest aria in the opera. Yes. And it's of incredible beauty. Incredible beauty and, again, expressiveness. It just beautifully expresses. It's timeless. It was written so long ago, and yet it perfectly expresses the grief that Dido feels of of a broken heart, and who can't relate to that? I'm sad for anyone who can't relate to this aria, seriously. She wills herself to death, almost. She really does. I mean, it's. I, I guess it's in the dying great, of a broken heart. It is. I mean, she does it here, she does it in at the end of Les Troyens. Isolde, at the end of Tristan de Isolde. You know, it's a broken heart, and it's it's. they simply, all these these great women have decided... I'm moving on. I'm going to, I'm simply going to take leave of this life. And she does. And then the chorus orders cupids to scatter roses on her tomb, soft and gentle as her heart. Keep here your watch and never, never, never part. End of opera. End of opera. The earliest English opera. And yet still one of its greatest. Purcell had a real talent 
for setting libretto. Yes. That's one thing that people always, singers always say about Purcell, is that it's so incredibly easy to sing. It's so well-crafted. Yeah. If and this think- is a truly great role for mezzo-soprano. And actually, even some uh, sopranos late in, in career have moved into it. Uh, I think particularly of, of the great Kirsten Flagstad, the great, great Wagnerian soprano, one of the greatest of all times. And toward the end of her career and life, her voice had settled down a little bit. She didn't have the top notes, but she had this big, beautiful organ-like voice that could so do such justice to, to that, particularly that last aria, When I Am Laid in Earth. And of course, it was almost 300 years before any other great British opera composers would come along with Benjamin Britten. Mm. I suppose that's true, yeah, yeah. Who was indebted to Purcell. Yeah. Benjamin Britten really was sort of the, the successor to Henry Purcell. Yeah, yeah, you, you certainly could say that. I mean, Gilbert and Sullivan certainly made their bid, uh, and Sullivan always wanted to write a serious opera. Which he did. He did. It just didn't take hold. Ivanhoe. Yeah, yeah. It, it never regained the popularity that his operettas did. Henry Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm St. John Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.